Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome, Welcome to, to Toronto, Toronto Under Construction, Construction. a <laughs> podcast about everything Toronto real estate. See, we're in stereo today. Steve. I'm your host. I'm ben your Me- host. Oh, I'm no. your host. Ah. <laughs> ben Myers. <laughs> and Steve Cameron. The funny guy, Steve Cameron. That's this you, right? Yeah. Steve's still angry that we had a potential guest that said he was not funny. But uh, I thought we had to, the last show was pretty funny. I, think there I don't was know some what's good, wrong with her. She's, she needs to read a book about humor. <laughs> I, got, I got some jokes up my sleeve today. <laughs> nice. Nice. Ben, Hopefully before no- we start. Yes. Really important. Okay. Really important. Jays. The they're Jays. just on, they're going for the it. Jays are, are going, they going for, for it. it? Matt yeah, Chapman, Matt best third baseman in the league. Kukuchi, you know. We, Tell me about Chapman though. Like, I mean, he's got to be. If he's not the best third baseman, he's, he's the, the top definitely three. the best defensive third baseman. But in yeah, the but game. he's got a bat, and yeah, he uh, hit 36 home runs a few years ago. So I'm. Uh, are you stoked? I'm stoked. I keep checking Twitter for for baseball news, and uh, it's is all he, this is damn he, housing news in my my. Feed. Is he equivalent to the bringer of the rain? Because he's the last third baseman we signed for Atlanta or. Uh, the athletics worked out pretty well for yeah. us. I yeah, think I don't this know if he'll be, be. I don't know if he'll be as good as Dalton, but come on, we'll we'll no? uh, we'll we'll keep our fingers crossed. Are they making a run this year? I'm making a run. I I'm, love I'm, it. I'm hopefully we'll be talking about uh, World Series in October, not October podcast. They're all in, baby. I love it. Love all to right. see it. I think I think mixing in a little bit of sports talk in the old real estate <laughs> podcast. Some people just fast forwarded that part. Yeah, but, uh, well, they'll anyways. thank us in the April. They will. They will. Um, well, let's let's get into it. We have uh, we have a sponsor of this show, uh, and they're it. called the Plus Group, and they're comprised of five distinct companies: RN Design, SRN Architects, Sailfish, Sales Software, Kool Aid Studios, and Studio Uno ID, offering services in marketing, architecture, interior design, and real estate software. Their mission is simple: revolutionize the real estate industry through efficiency, innovation, quality while adding value to the client experience. For more information on the Plus Group or any of their five companies, visit plusgroup.ca. And uh, definitely uh, reach out to my man, Greggy. He's the guy to... Uh, Big Greg, he's, he's showing us mad love, and you know, I got to tell yeah. you, he's uh, engaged, excited, you know, and he's, he's, sharing, he's more than he's just a sponsor. Yeah, he's sharing our stuff online, so... Promoter uh, of the show. But our guest is someone that's been online for a while as well. <laughs> Terrible segue, Ron. <laughs> Terrible segue, Ron. Uh, yeah, but this this guest is exciting. It's one of uh, one one of which I was just saying probably going to be the most natural conversations we've had on the show. Uh, good friend of the show and of both Ben and I's Matt Young is uh, today's guest. And uh, a little bit about Matt Young, if you uh, haven't heard of him, you probably have. He's a pretty big deal in the old uh, development community. But uh, Matt was a graduate of uh, Western University, graduated with a BA in sociology, believe it or not, in 2007. He got his start by working in the summers, uh, helping his uncle renovate some of his commercial properties and eventually got a bit of a real estate itch. He decided his real passion was ground-up development and went on a path to find a way into the industry any way he could. After graduating, the financial crisis ramped up and hiring, a real estate, and hiring in real estate stalled. So he decided to go backpacking a little bit and get a baseline education. He did a certificate after that in real estate <laughs> development at Haskian? 
business school at the University of Calgary from 08 to 09. Shout out Calgary. Any listeners out there, your economy's coming back. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Anyways, sorry, back to the intro. After a summer of traveling, the job market began to uh, pick up and he was hired at Lifetime Developments as project manager. Lifetime was just transitioning from a low-rise builder into commercial properties, and Matt was one of the first non-family hires on the development side. He spent three years there getting incredible experience working on big projects such as the Bisha Hotel, Yorkville Condominiums, The Bond, Karma, The Index, and several others. In 2012, he joined Capital Developments, spent eight years there, and most recently, left Capital to start his own gig at Republic Developments. Matt has a great resume, a good story. He's got lots to talk about. Instead of me telling you, why don't we hear from the man himself? Mr. Matt Young, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, no problem. Good to be here. Those, those, uh, the intro was another six paragraphs that, that he wrote. And I had to skip through it. So uh, you got, we got the first half of your life. I think you misread a few things too. <laughs> what did I miss there? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, just yeah. Don't worry about it. Don't. No, worry hold about on. Steve. I got it. It's, it's part of the fun. Is is you're trying to read people's intros. Uh, <laughs> no, the, the best part is I read them for the first time. The first live time. On the That's show. just the way to do it. That's yeah. the way to get into it. So, I love so let's it. just jump into it. So, so Matt, <laughs> you uh, you you started your career at Lifetime. Why don't we start there? Uh, you uh, you know basically a family company that was doing a lot of low rise, and they were getting into the high you know much more into the high rise residential business. So, tell us a little about uh, your experience there. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. Um, it was a small. It was kind of the type of company I was looking for. I wanted to be at a small company where I felt I could have an impact and get as much experience as possible. So, as kind of a, they were a fairly small team. They were transitioning to doing more high rise. They had done a number of partnerships with other developers. They were starting to take on things more on their own, and um, and they had a huge pipeline of work. So I was able to. I was working side by side with Brian Brown, who was a guest of yours before. Uh, uh, shout out Brian and. The show. Um, you know, kind of learned everything soup to nuts there over three years. We had six projects we launched, five of which I was involved in. And it was just a very, very busy three years and got to touch everything from the acquisition side, finance, uh, marketing and sales, planning entitlements, uh, even getting to see a little bit of the construction side. So it was kind of like a good baseline education in real estate development for me. So would you say you are the man you are today because of those three years? Yeah, big time. No, no, I would. Honestly, like I, I learned so much working there and, um, you know, the two partners, Mel and Sam, uh, were incredible and both kind of brought something very different to the table. And so I was, I mean, I think a lot of my career has been learning from other people and kind of just sort of monkey see monkey do. And as, uh, as I learned from good people, I've had good mentors over the years. Uh, I think it's helped accelerate my career. So it was, yeah, I just want to jump in there real quick. I remember Matt, you used to, you reached out to me a few times, and we would go out and you'd talk about your career with me and ask me for advice. But it's funny, we're the opposite now. I call you for advice, so it's <laughs> it's funny how the world has changed. I in, still call uh, you for advice every once in a while. <laughs> Actually, as re- recently as ten minutes ago, I was asking you for a study. So <laughs> pat my back, I scratch yours, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to actually uh, wait uh, a little bit later on to ask this question, but we're talking about lifetime and you mentioned Mel and Sam and you can think about this and, and answer later, but you know, 
God bless his soul. Sam's no longer here, but we all know he was a very difficult person to work for and work with. <laughs> and I'm sure you have at least one good uh, Sam Herzog story, maybe two. But is there anything you could share or any moments where you, you, that just strike you as, uh, you know, life defining moments slash like scared for your life moments? <laughs> <laughs> there was a few of the scared for, for my life moments for sure. Um, Sam was actually a really nice guy. Like when yeah. you got to know him and, you know, the people he cared about, he really took care of. But when it came to business, he was very shrewd and, uh, and he was a tough negotiator and stuff. I remember, uh, when I first started there, probably within the first year, and this is kind of early in my career, not just in real estate, but just anything, graduating school and working in a professional, you know, in an office. Um, I walked up to his office, he called me up there for something and he would kind of typically yell down. He wouldn't call your phone. He'd just yell down and he'd come up to the office. Somebody was in the room with him. He asked me a question and then I answered the question and then he didn't really tell me to leave and I didn't know what to do. So I sort of started backing away <laughs> and I, there was like a little, um, sill into his office and I tripped over it. He looked at me like I was a complete idiot. Um, but I was just so scared. I had no idea what to do. And his, so anyways, there's yeah. lots of those types of stories, yeah. but it was an amazing experience getting to work with him. Um, he was an incredible businessman, an incredible person. So yeah, there's, yeah, there's a, a few privilege. people in this industry that are, I don't know, they just seem in, uh, intimidating. Uh, Ellie did. is always the one that's just, I don't know. It's but he's just always kind of scares me. <laughs> it's the polar opposite. Of, uh, I've never we're, met both, Ellie. we're both in the same business, but I think we're, I think we're very, uh, his style is very different than us. Our style. Let's leave it at that. So yeah. you left lifetime and, uh, <clears throat> the career evolved moving over to capital developments or CD, I guess at the time. And uh, spent eight years there learning and developing quite a bit. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that and working with Jordan and Todd and what you did there and some of the projects you worked on. Yeah, CD was an amazing experience as well. And spelt, I spent the bulk of my career there. Um, Jordan and Todd had... They built an incredible business in Eastern Europe, working for Peter Monk. And, you know, they were Canadian guys, uh, wanted to raise their families here. So they came back to Toronto to build a development business here. And when I joined, uh, it was just them. It was just the two of them as partners. So they were just kind of getting the business up and running. Um, there was myself and another guy, uh, Andrew Adams, who you should probably have on the podcast. He'd be a great guest. Um we kind of started the company, the four of us, and I led a lot of the development stuff. Andrew did a lot of the finance stuff. Jordan and Todd were great mentors and leaders and um, already had put together a number of deals. And, you know, the thing there was I had gotten great experience at Lifetime and now is a chance to prove myself, you know, without, you know, not, not that I didn't have a boss. I had bosses, but, you know, sort of having more autonomy and a little bit more control over the process. And so I started with 155 Redpath and then 150 Red Path as projects and started the application process and entitlement process there. And those ended up being very, very successful projects. Um, and then kind of throughout that experience, ended up taking on more work. And, you know, a big thing uh, was starting to focus on acquisitions and bringing in new deals. So the first acquisition I did there was uh, Bloor and Dufferin, which was a seven and a half acre master plan of, you know, 1.8 million square feet. So, you know, I always tried to grow the business wherever you could and, you know, I think I have an ambitious personality. So anytime there was an opportunity put in front of me, I wanted to sort of knock it out of the park and do as best I could. So, um, yeah, so the experience there was amazing. It was an opportunity to kind of 
build my reputation a bit, build my career, get great experience. Um, and they, as, as operators and as managers and executives are, were very different than Mel and Sam. And they, you know, they taught me a whole bunch of different things that, that I think is contributed to where I am today and the company I'm trying to build. So let's just, let's, I want to ask a quick question about that blur and deference site. Cause I know, I mean, obviously the, your, your previous company is now, you know, sold that site. But it obviously was really contentious. You know, there was uh, potential issues with heritage there, which kind of makes me laugh because for me, the, the school there looks like crap. But I am not a, <laughs> I am no heritage expert. So you were actually getting attacked by a few people online on, on Twitter because of that. Like, how was that experience? Did you, did you learn much from that experience uh, in, in trying to get that thing approved? Yeah, I mean, every rezoning I've ever done, I've learned something. Um, they're always different. That one was particularly complex. Uh, first of all, it was the biggest one I've ever done. It was a master plan. And I think once you're getting into master plans, the number of details and components you need to get right and the number of stakeholders involved just gets bigger and bigger. And uh, it just means you're juggling that many more things to try and keep everybody happy. It also means you have to sometimes make compromises. Not if you followed every city policy completely to a T, nothing would ever get built. So when you're doing these master plans, sometimes you have to decide what's a priority. Is it, you know, the built form? Is it the parks? Is it, you know, some other thing, heritage? Um, and so a lot of what I was learning on that project was how to try to find a balance and keep people happy and feeling like they're part of the process and, and coming along, but be comfortable enough to to say, you know, we don't need exactly what we're asking for on this issue because they're achieving the greater good overall. Um, and there was a kind of a kind of a lesson in how to play the politics game, I guess, a little bit. There was a very strong stakeholder group there, community ratepayer group that was organized around that project. It actually didn't exist before we came along. And, you know, a big part of the process was getting to know them. And so I had many, many, I couldn't even count how many meetings I had with them. And I was trying to build a relationship with them and listening to what they had to say. And um, I think if you talk to any of those people in that group today, they would say, you know, it was a tough process, but they were always listening. They were always willing to have a conversation. And, and ultimately, we came to an agreement that I think they were happy about, the city was happy about. It was a win-win across the board by the time it was all said and done. Was, so. was their issue more height or the affordable housing com, uh, component or, what, or the school? or what was the, was Their the, biggest uh, issue was community benefits, particularly affordable housing. That was by far the number one issue. And this is before people were really talking about inclusionary zoning. So doing affordable housing on projects was starting to happen, but it, it, you know, it wasn't top of mind before. Like on previous projects I had done, typically you cut a check, you pay section 37 money and the counselor or you know, staff would decide where that money is going to go. Uh, in this case, with such a large project, the plan was to put the community benefits on the site in some form or fashion. And, you know, we had a community hub and other priorities that people had identified. And so it was a matter of finding a balance between, you know, how do we deliver all the different things we want here, but do it in a commercially reasonable way. I yeah. mean, the lands were owned by the by the city, right? Before before they were sold to you, or by the the, the school the district? Toronto Lands Corporation. Yeah. So okay. the the I guess technically the province. Do you think that they should have zoned the site before selling it, or do you think it's better to be in the hands of developer? I think, and I personally, just before you answer, 
think it's always better because the developer always pushes the boundaries and ends up with more housing supply in the end, as opposed to, you know, these organizations that tend to do a little less aggressive. But in the end, maybe they could have captured more value if they had got it approved, right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there's a lot of nuance to this business and um, everything from suite designs, uh, where amenities go, all those types of things. You have to be thinking about you know, how, the marketability of what you're getting approved. So even if you hire a third-party planning firm, they're probably not going to have as good experience at, at delivering kind of an optimal development program as a developer would. So I think they did the right decision to, they made the right decision to sell it to a developer. I think they, you know, there's probably certain things, you know, there was a lot of kind of gray areas in terms of the agreement and around the uh, community hub and what was required uh, to be done and what wasn't, you know, some of those things could always be tightened up a little bit better to sort of help set expectations for people. But overall, I think the process went well. We got a lot of density approved. We delivered an incredible community benefits program, a 56 unit affordable housing building that the city owned. So it's not like we were just delivering, owning the building ourselves and keeping it as affordable. We are actually turning over the whole asset. There was a $17 million affordable housing land trust that was created. There's a 30,000 square foot community hub. There was a full park. It was, I think, around an acre in size. And then plus heritage retention and other things, plus a whole bunch of new housing that we needed. So um, I think in the end, it was a great result for everybody. Um, and now it's been, I think, sold to, uh, to Adrian and, uh, and the guys at Hazelview. And I think they're going to do a great job executing on the project. And I'm excited to see it when it's built. Oh, awesome. We'll have to get Adrian on the show at some point in time. We will. We will. He's, uh, he's, on, he's on the radar for sure. Matt, I wanted to ask you about two other projects before we move on to, uh, to the Republic days. But you mentioned Red Path. This is my first one. You mentioned Red Path. And you did, uh, there was a brief, I, I remember briefly, there was a period, I think, post-lifetime pre-CD where you were working with Peter Freed. And that's how you got involved with Red Path, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? No, not exactly. Actually, what happened was Peter and... Uh, Jordan and Todd had partnered on the Red Path projects and the Art Shop project. And I think at the time that was all happening, um, you know, Peter had a a team who was going to be managing those projects. Uh, I think Bill Gardner was uh, was involved early on. And then Bill eventually left to start his own shop. And so they had to find somebody to run the project. So there was a search to find a candidate. I was introduced actually to Jordan and Todd. So it was on the CD side and they brought me to the table. And effectively, the, the two parties sort of you know, paid for me as a manager for, for the project. So that's right. how it came about. Um, so technically I was working for both groups for Peter and for, for George. So tell Todd. me just to quickly, just not to get too deep into the red path because it's pretty like young and Eglinton has become young and Eglinton. But when I think Peter probably had the, the, the foresight to buy red path. I mean, it was a bunch of, it was a, an assembly of homes in a residential neighborhood, not really at the corner of young and Eglinton. Yes. Young and Eglinton is a, a subway stop, but, this was pretty visionary, if you ask me. Pretty, and I remember pretty aggressive acts. Very aggressive. <laughs> like if you look at what's happening at Davisville and Lawrence Subway Station, even at St. Clair Subway Station, there's like lots of pushback on development in these communities. If you look what's happening along, like we talk about other subway, but this was a visionary move that's obviously worked out well, and many other developers have benefited from it. Um, but what was your sort of, you know, comment on on that project, and how did it go, and any just sort of like a 
comment on Peter and, and having the vision to put that assembly together and go for high rise there? Yeah, well, look, it was extremely visionary. Um, and Peter's always been amazing at that. I think him, him building King West is a perfect example of kind of the way his mind thinks and um, how he looks at development. The one thing I'd say, though, is that to me, it wasn't a big surprise that this would be a high density node. It was a growth center, number one, which is where you know, official plan policies want the most density in those growth center places. You had a huge multi-billion dollar uh, transit infrastructure project in the Crosstown LRT that was approved and underway. And so to me, it was super obvious that this area was going to become a high, high density, uh, high growth area. And that, you know, and the growth center was actually, it's identified. So that whole pocket where you see a lot of uh, the new buildings going up in the Northeast quadrant of Young and Egg, that's where they expected all the density to go. So it wasn't a big surprise. Where I think the the real challenge on that project was actually assembling 19 homes. Yeah, of course. That is an unbelievable chess game to play to try and get get that to happen. Yeah. And uh, and I think they did a brilliant job, right. like really a brilliant job of, of putting that together. So and wasn't there one holdout though? <laughs> there, there was one holdout on, on the west side, which eventually they were not a holdout. They ended up uh, eventually selling into the okay. plan. But the first application submitted uh, without them, and you know they, um, you know I think they they wrote a fine line of can I make as much money as possible but still get it into the plan. Yeah. The counter to that would be if you look just north where Pemberton did, I think yeah. it was City Lights, there's a holdout right on the corner there oh, it's, who it's, it's you nasty. Know, pl- played, their, yeah. played their cards a little bit too aggressively, um, too and, aggressively and I think they lost. And, you don't um, think they lost. They lost bad. Their they house lost worth, bad. Their house isn't even worth a dollar. It's, it's I mean, true. People need housing. It's probably worth more than a dollar, but it's certainly not worth <laughs> what, what Pemberton was prepared uh, to pay them. Imagine you're yeah, looking so for a house. The type of house that costs a million dollars these days is not But it's it's a perfect example. Whenever you know we're and we've done a number of assemblies now in Scarborough, and when we're talking to landowners, it's sort of the example I point to. I say. This is what happens when, if you get too aggressive and, you know, so it's one thing to kind of push and, you know, get the most value you can. And if I was in your shoes, I'd do the exact same thing, but there is a limit to it. And, you know, so we always try whenever we're in those positions to be super transparent, go open kimono and and share everything with them and show them, you know, what we're offering you is extremely fair. And in fact, in many cases, it would be more than fair. Um, but not so unfair and so unreasonable that it just doesn't work for us anymore. Yeah. And, and it's funny, you know, if people can't see that, then there's nothing you can do. All you can do is. It's funny. Yeah, I, re- I reached out to you cause I was, I was working with a, with a landowner who had, you know, what we call a potential stranded site, right? Like the last house on the block where there's a, of a development site. Right. And, and, and really trying to advise him on what it's worth. Right. Because, uh, you know, the development could have gone forward and can still go forward with, without him, but you know, it's the corner piece and the city would probably like it. And maybe the city would be nicer or, uh, or, you know, fast track it or, 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 or something if they had that piece. Right. So I, mean, I reached out to you, I reached out to Naram because Naram's always a, a, a good person to, to chat with and Jeremiah, of course. Right. And it's funny, you guys all had a little bit different opinion on how you would value that, that piece. Right. So it's always kind of interesting to get those, uh, those perspectives. Yeah. So it's, it's more of an art than it is a science. In some cases you're actually, if you just quantified it, like, will we, will the project do better or, 
worse financially because of buying this? Oftentimes the answer is it will do worse financially, but sometimes you're helping to de-risk the site. So if you can get it, as you pointed out, will the city be a a bit more approachable in terms of getting the uh, rezoning approved or uh, will they help speed the process up? Is it a chip that you can use to kind of, as you're negotiating things sometimes, and those are things that maybe you can't quantify there, but they just maybe help clean up the site and just make it an easier process. So It just it brings me to one one quick thing before I see if has another question on one of your previous sites before we get into your new company is tieback agreements. Is that something that uh, ends up, ever gets contentious between you and the neighbor? I know the answer. It's yes. Sometimes. <laughs> so, what, do you, what do you mean? Sometimes. Sometimes it, sometimes it can. Not all the time. Oh, yeah. I've I've done lots of tieback agreements where everyone's quite reasonable and it's it's uh, it's fair. Actually, the worst tieback agreement I ever saw, or the most the most contentious one I ever saw, was when I was at Lifetime. We did a project called The Bond at 290 Adelaide, and there's a property directly east of it. I think it's an active green and Ross, um, and then there's a Hooters on the corner. I know where the Hooters is. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's your... Uh, Great place to watch a jet stream, man. Too. Good wings, right? Good wings, yeah. exactly. Great wings. So actually that patio, talk about the bond, that patio, not, not even joking around, used to be one of like the best kept secrets in the city. Used to go there after an afternoon Jays game and you'd get like the afternoon sun and they'd have TVs there and they'd have like buckets of beer for like 12 bucks and it would be like just spectacular. But no one would really think about to go up to the Hooters patio (laughs) and the bond came (laughs) along and then all the surrounding condos and they lost the sun and yeah, yeah, they should have sold. We weren't, I don't think uh, Lifetime was even trying to buy them at the time. Maybe they were, but if they were, I didn't know about it. But it was a very deep parking garage and it, it was a fairly long time. By the way, that was a, like my experience. I just heard that. I just heard that from other people. <laughs> like, I was, I don't know that. I did that. Just, Stop cutting them yeah. off. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this. This is tiebacks. Back tie to tie backs. Backs. Yeah, it's interesting. Stuff. So, so that ended up being a very expensive um, and difficult negotiation. I believe the owners, and I might be totally wrong in this, so, you know. If uh, someone, if Brian, you're out there, you want to correct this, feel free. But I think the owners were in China or Korea. So there was a process of having to get in touch with them through a representative. And it, you know, it was just a, it was a very expensive one. But the reality was in that case, and it's often just based on the design of the building and uh, the circumstances, it, it was very cost prohibitive to not get tiebacks yeah. because you would have had to do rakers, you know, four or five levels down and uh, it would have slowed down the construction uh, timelines quite a bit, and it would have cost more money to do the formwork and excavation and everything else. So even then, it made sense. All the other projects I've done have generally been reasonable. You know, We try and minimize parking too. So if we're doing two levels or three levels, it's not so bad. It gets a lot tougher when you're getting into five, six levels. Um, so I, I've never really had too many issues there. So you're, so you're happy with the city now allowing less parking? Yeah, I think it's positive. I think it's good for it's good for the city. We were finding on some of our projects that people weren't buying the parking. Yeah. So, you know, there was a requirement to deliver a certain amount of parking. That was part of the negotiation. And then, you know, yeah, or, or you have to discount it yeah. in order to get it sold. And I think the reality is people are finding cost of living is getting higher. And with things like Uber and, you know, new technologies on the way, I think the need for a car is going to be a lot less in the future. So, and you think about it, it's an, a- it's an asset you own, a depreciating asset that you use maybe 5% of the time, yeah. if you're lucky, maybe less. Yeah. So those types you, of things. You spend $125,000 for a parking space now. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's yeah, bananas, you know, right? It's, it's a lot. 
Um, you know, my brother who lived, who's lived in LA now for eight years, he only got a car in the past year. Wow. He's, he's lived in LA, which is like notoriously a car city. Is, yeah. He said, Uber is just so much more convenient. I can yeah. like order the car. It'll take me anywhere. It's reasonably priced. I don't have to pay for insurance and deal with like new tags or any of the other things, maintenance that comes with having a car. And then I sit in the back, I've got a chauffeur and I can, you know, deal with work or deal with whatever else I need to do. So you don't I, have to I, replace I think more an more alternator are, in your car. Yeah. 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 yeah we had a little uh, issue after the last show yeah. Ben had to stick around for a couple hours and waited for CAA to come to the old <laughs> Towed. <laughs> yeah, they towed my car. <laughs> Alternator went. Uh, yeah, he was sitting outside for like forty-five minutes, and it was like minus twenty. I'm like, Ben, you can come back inside. It's <laughs> Steve allowed me to come back in. <laughs> I had to sit in the room by myself with a mask on, but that was it. <laughs> One question I wanted to ask you, uh, Matt, is um, my good friend uh, Sean Fleming. Uh, who used to work with Metropia when you were at Capital tells me that you absolutely, his words, crushed it on the zoning at E2. He said that you saw something that no one else saw. The planners all underwrote the site at 20 to 25% less density, but you were able to see something and exceed those targets by a landslide. What was it, uh, in your opinion, that you saw and, and, and why were you able to be so successful? And, and tell us about how much density you got there. What did I see? I mean... After the experience working on the two Red Path projects, you know, and this is one of the things when you're when you want to try and be really good at something, you want to be so good at the really small details and understand every nuance you can as as best as possible. And that's where I find the opportunities are. So I had already done um, the two Red Path projects uh, in that area. I knew who the planners were and I had a relationship with the planners. I understood the counselor. Uh, who is, you know, typically, a, a, I would say, mostly anti-development type counselor. And we were able to actually get our approvals through council. We didn't have to appeal to the board. We were able to, we didn't get his support, but we got everybody else's support. And so just kind of, there was a lot of nuances to, to that, where I just felt the underwriting that was being uh, given to us was, was a lot lower than it really could have been or should have been. If you think about it, that block is very close to the corner of Young and Eglinton and Typically, when you get these growth centers, there's sort of a height peak. And in that case, um, at the time, it was e-condos at the corner. Uh, now it's the, the uh, I think it's Davpart on the south side, who's got 60-something stories approved there. But I assume there'd be kind of a transition down. And if you started to look at the angular planes and the height map and some of the applications that were in place, and you started to like map it out visually, it just seemed obvious to me that this site could accommodate more height. So I think there was talk about, yeah, like high, high twenties to maybe mid thirties. I think we had a few different opinions and, and I think we ended up getting 46 stories approved there. Yeah. But that, that's a pretty big difference. Like, come on. Yeah. But you know, E2 condos or, or E condos rather was uh 58 stories. So there was still a reasonable transition from that building. Right. And I think what, what kind of threw people off was that Minto across the street had, I forget what their height was, but like low thirties. And the thought was, okay, at best you're going to get what they got or maybe a little bit more. But, you know, I just felt, you know, we could do a little bit better. And um, a lot of it comes down to the relationships with the planning staff and who you're working with. Like some planning staff honestly don't care as much about height. They care about the, the public realm, the, the ground plane, you know, the pedestrian experience, all of those things matter, architecture. And so sometimes you have to play, play to the people you're working with. And so you so. must have kissed some butt for Azura, because didn't you get that one like approved in like 16 months or something? 
Yeah, that one went quick. That was a totally different for a totally different reason, um, and you know probably maybe got less density than theoretically you could have gotten. So, and there's actually an interesting tie-in to uh, the Young and Eglinton portfolio as well. But the planner who is working in Young and Eglinton, who I had built a good relationship with, uh, he got promoted to the manager position in North York. So when we picked up the Azura site, I had a conversation with him and. Uh, we kind of, I put all our cards on the table and said, you know, here's what we're looking to do. How do we deliver a positive outcome for you? And we get a positive outcome ourselves. There's a secondary plan in North York, which has been around for a very long time that puts a height or not a height peak, but a, a fix on the density. So a maximum FSI you're allowed to have on any site and the whole area is mapped out. So the challenge there is that the counselor is very focused on maintaining what's in the secondary plan, which is, I would say, artificially very low. It's The densities are far too low than where they should be. Uh, and so there was a number of other applicants who had submitted applications and immediately appealed um, to the OMB at the time or LPAT at the time. And so I told Julio, I think we can deliver a, a plan that will follow the secondary plan. But in exchange for that we need you to basically move our application to the top of the pile and we need to move it as fast as possible because the only way I can help out perform on this project is to move faster. And so we kind of, we ended up presenting three different options for them on how we could lay out the site and how we could make it work. They didn't care as much about height, but they did care about overall density. And so we made sure we hit that density number. Our height might have been a little bit higher than it was supposed to be, but our floor plate was a little bit bigger. So the efficiency of the floor plate was uh, was improved. And we said, pick one option and we're going to move forward with that option. And we need an approval as fast as possible. And we ended up getting our rezoning and site plan done in 11 months. And then we started construction within 16 months from the date we uh, started the application. So effectively, when the approval got done, and actually the approval got deferred a couple months as well, we probably could have got it done in nine months, but it got deferred a couple of times. Um, but 11 months, we got it approved. Uh, a week later, we started sales. We The sales were incredible. Uh, Baker did a great job of that one. And um, and then Hell we had already mom. started our working drawings and progressing towards permits. So we had submitted for permit maybe a month later. And a few months after that, we got our permits and off to the races. Yeah, that's crazy. The difference between the price per square foot, what you sold for and what it is now. <laughs> that's probably like yeah. 13, Let's not talk 50. about that because you, that, that would give a lot, of, uh, a lot of developers a lot of anxiety. But uh, <laughs> moving on. So eight great years at, at CD. But the time came when you were ready to spread your wings and uh, fly on your own. You founded this uh, your new company, Republic, and uh, you bought a site, and, and that was the beginning of, of where you are today. So tell us all about it. It's exciting. It's the, it's the young developer's dream. Yeah, I mean, I always, even from the lifetime days, I always sort of had a, a grand ambition to be able to develop projects for myself. And um, a lot of it was I wanted a little bit of creative control. The reason I love development so much is because I had sort of an analytical side of me and a creative side of me. And I thought, and I loved architecture. So I thought if I could do something where I can have an influence on a city and, uh, you know, get to work on these really cool projects, that would be an exciting path for me. And I wanted to have a bit of control over that stuff. So, you know, the time came at CD, it was an amazing eight years and I, I'm still 
friends with those guys and I still love everybody over there and, uh, they're doing amazing things, but you know, I was young enough still, I didn't have, you know, I don't have kids or anything yet. And so I felt if I'm ever going to do it on my own, now is the time to do it before kind of life catches up and, uh, and it makes it more difficult. So, uh, we ended up, uh, parting ways in a very amicable way. And, uh, and I started thinking through a strategy of, you know, if I'm going to go do this, how are we going to do it and be successful? Because, you know, I didn't come from, uh, you know, I'm not second or third generation real estate family. I'm a first generation developer. So, you know, and the barriers of entry every year are getting harder and harder and more difficult to, uh, to get through. So I wanted to figure out what could I do that would allow me to not compete with the big boys because I didn't want to have to be fighting, you know, to buy land against them. Uh, and, you know, where did I see the next opportunity in the city? And, um, and that for me was Scarborough. You know, I did a I did a deep study on all the different submarkets in the GTA, and I found that everywhere from Vaughan, Markham, Richmond Hill, Etobicoke, Mississauga, everywhere was seeing huge growth, except for basically Scarborough and Brampton. And if you looked at those two on a map, Scarborough is like 20 minutes to downtown Toronto. It's amazing, amazing real estate. It may just have a bit of a PR problem. And so PR is a solvable problem. You can't fix bad real estate, but PR you can fix. And so I started looking in Scarborough, seeing, you know, where is the next place that could, there could be an opportunity. And I identified this site on a go station. It's effectively a, it was an employment area, you know, contaminated site, uh, really dilapidated uh, uh, industrial type site, you know, the roof's leaking and just wasn't in good shape. We've been inside. You've been inside. You've seen it. And, um, you know, so we, we saw an opportunity to build a master plan community there. I sort of tried to take the experience I got on Bloor and Dufferin and, and we weren't actually able initially to buy the whole thing. So what, what the way it started was we uh, tied up one property and after tying up that one property, we started having a conversation with the neighbor who owned 20 of the, you know, 26 acres we bought. And they, you know, they were talking about the idea of selling, but they weren't, I don't think they were ready to sell yet. You know, they, they kind of said in the next six months, we'll do something. And they sort of looked at me, I think a little bit like, who are you to try and buy this site? Like this is going to require, you know, some major capital and, and, uh, expertise and all these things. And I didn't have a, you know, other than my name, if you weren't in real estate circles, you didn't know who Matt Young was. So even if you were, you might not. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come on, we dropped his more, name more like 12, uh, 12 of the 30 episodes. Of, yeah, but it's like the latter 12. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, but he said something in the meeting that, uh, you know, I, I sort of picked up on. And, you know, sometimes you have those meetings and you want to try and find little bits of, you know, nuggets of information and see how you can use those to your advantage. And, you know, he was particularly concerned about contamination on his site and potentially offsite contamination to some of the neighboring properties. So we ended up starting to buy up all those neighboring properties. And then I came back to him a month and a half later and said, well, now we own five sites around you. Mm. So Smart. we're the only ones who can help you know, help solve your issue on this. And we ended up, you know, I think they came, eventually came around to realizing that we would be, you know, good people to sell to. We put a probably 120 page document together for them presentation on who our team was and, you know, what we were doing to, to make this happen. So I think we started to show some credibility and eventually they said, look, here's what we want. And, uh, we ended up uh, doing a deal. But even before that, we had closed on the first few properties and I think it was probably, three months after we closed on the first property that they came around and said, okay, 
make us an offer so and tell, we'll do so it. tell us about it. So you, yeah, you're, you're skipping over the we part. Who's the we? Like, I, you know, every developer that starts has to have some cash in the. Uh, High Rise Land Insights report by Bullpen Consulting and Vittori Management. The average <laughs> price might have heard of them. The average price of a high density uh, property that sold in 2021 was 30 million dollars. So you you have to have a little bit of capital behind you to to start buying some of these properties. Yeah, well, I had a little bit of money saved up, certainly not enough to close on the properties, but I had enough money to tie up some properties. So I ended up tying up some properties and putting together a business plan around the redevelopment of this site. And uh, the first conversation I had was with Andrew Lepper, who I worked with. He was a CFO at Freed when I was at CD. And he had maybe a year, year and a half earlier, left, uh, left Freed to join uh, Jeff Kimmel at Harlow Capital. So I had a conversation with Andrew and I said, listen, th- there's an opportunity here. Is it something you want to look at with me? And, you know, Andrew um, saw how I worked for you know, seven years at CD. And he saw, you know, it was kind of the only currency I had was my ability to execute on projects. I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have, you know, uh, guarantees or, or, uh, you know, deep banking relationships or anything, but I did know how to execute on projects. So, uh, he said to Jeff to, to have a meeting with me and we ended up chatting about the project and eventually they said, we'd love to be a part of it. So probably, Three, four months later, after kind of coming to general terms, we had to close on the first property. And so they helped us close on the first property. They were the first kind of uh, tranche of equity that came into the deal. And then from there, we were able to, you know, put some debt on the property and then start closing on some of the other properties that we had tied up. And eventually, once we had this assembly, there was a lot of value that got created through the assembly. And so we were able to um, to kind of continue to buy more property through that process and, uh and so that's how it all happened. So did you sell them on the fact that you're a local Scarborough born and bred boy? Did that help? I don't know if that helped for their equity <laughs> investment. You know, maybe it helps a little bit with the story. But I, I think they did recognize that I had done a lot of research. And, you know, it wasn't like I was just going out on a whim saying, I think Scarborough's the next spot. You know, one of the things we looked at was, and why I was starting to look at the periphery instead of downtown was the last project I was involved in at CD was 11 Yorkville, which, you know, from the pricing that it was underwritten at to what it was eventually sold for, the move had been enormous. Um, Now, costs had gone up as well. So it started to scare me a little bit that pricing was moving so quickly. And I just got this kind of feeling that this is going to be a problem for a lot of people trying to move into the city. If pricing is going up this fast, there's going to be a major affordability issue. And... I don't know what that was. <laughs> um, and so how do you solve the affordability issue? Uh, you know, one way is to do affordable housing and that serves a particular niche of people. But if you don't qualify for that affordable housing, how do you actually deliver more housing affordability? And for me, the, the solution that I could deal with was buy land in cheaper places and make those places better, make people want to live in those places. And, um, and that's kind of where Scarborough, kind of came to be. We actually did an analysis. I looked at how many people can afford an average size condo downtown. And it was something around 220,000 people in the GTA could afford that. In other words, a bank, if they put their deposit down, a bank would give them a mortgage based on the salary that they make. And then I looked at if we did that same project in Scarborough, how many people could afford that? And it was about 450,000 people. So that kind of told me 
somewhere around 230,000 people are not being serviced by all the downtown product that's being built and they're going to have to push farther out. And I just fundamentally believe people would rather be an owner than a renter and they'd rather be an owner a little bit farther out of the city than a renter in the city long term. And so that's kind of the bet we made and Scarborough was the opportunity and this site just happened to be a perfect site. It was 18 minutes to Union Station so you could kind of deliver that urban experience directly connected to downtown, directly connected to East Harbor, a new uh, employment hub. And we had 26 acres to kind of reposition the entire neighborhood and, you know, create this new vision for what it could be. So that, you know, if you look at our master plan, it's very pedestrian oriented. We've got uh, active uses on all sides of the buildings. We've got internal loading, um, a five acre park, new grocery store. It's one of the biggest food deserts in the city. So we're adding new kind of amenities, a new public square, a new, you know, kind of retail high street. Um, it's kind of got everything you would ever want out of a community, a direct connection to the go, new daycare, new community center. And so we felt if we could tell that story properly, it would be a very high in demand product. And, uh, and so that was our thesis. Yeah, that was, it's, it's amazing. You know, I, I like to think when I drive around the city that I can, yeah, identify sites that are future development sites. But when you told me you were buying there, I was like, what? <laughs> it's a, you know, it's just a crappy industrial zone, right? Like, how could that ever work? But then when, when you, know, you kind of explained what you were, you were doing and the, the, the massive scale of it, I was like, yeah, it makes sense because you're, you're creating the new neighborhood, right? So yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty amazing. So, so that was, that, that was your first. So what's, what, obviously you've, you've, you're in the news like every other week with a different application. So how did it go from one to the, the huge amount? of uh, projects you have on the go now? Well, as that project was moving along and we submitted our application and the, you know, the the process was moving along, you know, I kind of get antsy about stuff. If I'm not that busy, I want to kind of, you know, keep growing the business. So we started looking for new opportunities and um, we had a few pokers in the fire that we were, we were kind of working towards. And Basically, around the same time, uh, summer last year, summer 2021, we had firmed up on two new partnerships, basically around the exact same time. So kind of everything fell at once. One was a partnership with uh, Silver Hotel Group, who's one of the largest uh, private hotel operators in the country. And they owned a number of properties you know, through COVID that they wanted to reposition. And uh, they were looking for a development partner to help them. And so we ended up uh, partnering with them uh, on five different properties around the city. So that included um, the Novotel Hotel on the Esplanade, the uh, Andor House Hotel at Young and Charles, um, a property at Three Swift, just at uh, Eglinton, um, you know, sort of towards Victoria Park, just east of uh, Don Mills area. Uh, another one at Eglinton and Castlefield or, or Dufferin and Castlefield, and then another one at Young and Steels. So we had five sites with them that we were working on. And, you know, the mandate was we want to move applications forward on all five sites simultaneously. So the reason you're seeing everything is because we had to work on five applications at the exact same time, and they all got submitted effectively around the same time. Uh, and then on top of that, we did another partnership with a landowner at uh, 111 Strawn. Uh, just on the west side of downtown. So, and that was, again, it happened at the exact same time. We got the application in at the exact same time as uh, as the others. So we had six applications running concurrently, <laughs> which was probably the busiest I've ever been in my life. Um, but, you know, we got it done. So that's amazing. That's amazing. 
So what's next? <laughs> yeah. What's next? Yeah. yeah. Are you uh, for now? What's next is just working through. You know, we've got a lot of stuff in the development uh, phase of the process. At some point, these will get approved and they'll move towards marketing and sales and eventually construction. So I think we want to work through some of these through the process. And you know, as as that happens, I think we'll start to continue to look at how we can build the pipeline in a reasonable way. But we have we have a pipeline of 10,000 units right now. So we have enough inventory to sell for the next 10 years and we'll be okay. Um, now, we may not sell it all. We may sell some of the sites. So um, I, got, I got a question for you then. <clears throat> and I ask what's next. And, and part of this business is you do a lot of work, you submit your application, then you do a lot of waiting. Would Republic ever buy his own site? Maybe to expedite, get your uh, construction team built and ready to go for the pipeline you do have behind you? Yeah, like we've actually thought about that and we've looked at some zone sites. Um, you know, it's tough right now. Sometimes, you know, you, you have a zone site and the owners put a lot of time and energy into it. And so their expectation of value may not always align with yours. And so if the right opportunity came up, we would absolutely look at his own site today a big thing we're going to have to try and figure out is how to balance out our pipeline. So we're not peaking in any one phase at one time. So, you know, as we have things moving into construction, we have new things moving into marketing and sales. We have new sites going through the development process and that way we can kind of balance out our organization and hire the right people. And, you know, nobody's too stretched at any one time. Right. Like our team did an incredible job over the last six months. We, we have two amazing development managers who helped uh, work on that portfolio and led a number of those files it was an enormous amount of work and they really stepped up to make it happen. But you don't want to do that all the time. Like it's no. just too stressful. So I did have a question I asked on Twitter if someone, if someone had any questions. So, uh, and one person said, you know, what is your limiting factors? A deal flow, capital expertise, and what are you doing to address it? If you do have any of those problems right now, I'd say our limiting factor would be probably staffing. Yeah. Um, we have amazing people, uh, but I'm just finding that there's, there's a shortage of really talented people in this space. And, you know, we're, we're really trying to hire the best, the best in class for everything. Um, and so finding the right people who are going to fit into our culture, we have a fairly unique culture as well. So it, it doesn't work for everybody. Um, you know, we've interviewed a number of people where, you know, I think they just realized it, it wasn't for them. Uh, and so finding someone who's going to fit into that culture, you know, work well with the team and, you know, who's got the expertise and experience to, to add some value to the organization. It's tough to find those people today. Yeah. So that, that's we, when we interviewed center court, they mentioned that they were, you know, they were hiring people with no real estate experience, right? Just trying to hire really smart people and trying to teach them the business on the fly. So yeah, and we're doing a little bit of the same <laughs> yeah. and you can do that for certain roles. You know, we hired a, an investment banker from RBC capital markets who spent five years there. And for certain roles they can do, uh, they can do that. But, um, for other roles, like you're not, you can't hire that person to be a VP of construction, <laughs> right? Like, you know, there's just, yeah. so you need to still find some really talented people with experience, um, for the organization. And, you know, one thing we did early on was we hired a lot of young people because I think young people tend to work harder and, um, they're hungry and they were excited and, and passionate. And so that's been great. And I think they've all gotten amazing experience. 
but there's certain things like you, you can't just hire a young person on the construction side to lead your construction. You need someone with deep experience who's had 15, 20 years, who's seen everything, done it all, has deep relationships. Um, you know, so we're going to start to fill in some of the gaps with some kind of more senior leaders um, over the coming year. You talk about young people and it's sort of a bit of a good segue to talk a bit, go back a bit to uh, to your career and your evolution as a, as a business leader to now business owner. But there are a lot of young people who listen to this podcast. And one of the questions that uh, someone in my office asked me to ask you is, what would be one piece of advice that you could give to young aspiring developers in Toronto? And how could you recommend that how do you recommend that they get started? So it's sort of two part question there, I guess. Um, I'll start with the, the, the first part, which is, you know, what would you recommend to them? I'd say once you have an opportunity, work as hard as you possibly can. Like to me, there's no substitute for hard work. Like if, if I'm, you know, and just basic math, if someone's working eight hours a day and I'm working 16 hours a day and we're equally productive, I'm going to be two X in terms of actual work output is going to be two X what they do. So you don't have to be the smartest person, but if you're willing to work harder than everybody else, you're going to see success in your career. Take every opportunity you can possibly get any, when I was at lifetime, the thing that I, I think made the biggest difference is anytime they had something that needed to be done, I volunteered for it. And I didn't care about how much time I spent. I wasn't counting and saying, oh, I'm working too many hours. I'm not getting paid enough. I didn't care about any of that. The first three years for me was just getting an experience. I would have done it for free. Literally, I would have done it for free. So if you get that experience and you can then, you know, and, you know, hopefully as they see that you've gained experience and you're adding more value, hopefully that employer is going to recognize that and start to give you more and more opportunity and more money and all the other things. But if they don't, you now have currency to go to the next employer and get something better. And so uh, I would say take every opportunity you can get, volunteer for everything you can, you know, don't complain, um, you know, just do it with a smile on your face and any good employer is going to recognize as you're, as you're doing a good job. In terms of getting your foot in the door, what I normally tell young people is it's good to have something like there's not a lot of training for real estate development. You don't go to, you don't do an undergrad in real estate development. So you kind of have to bring some area of expertise to the table today, whether it's finance, whether it's a planning degree or a design or architecture degree, uh, even marketing and sales, like whatever your angle is to get your foot in the door, uh, figure out what that is. And then once you're there, that's where you start volunteering for things and trying to learn more and sit down on meetings that have nothing to do with what you're doing. Like if you have a, an employer who's willing to allow you to do that, you're going to learn through osmosis, just listening to other smart people. And over time, as you start to figure out what your, uh, where, where you're good, where your, um, passions are, you know, you can start to shift your career into that direction. It's a good so. answer. It's a good answer. You know, Matt, you're a bit of a, you know, you're a, a bit of a serial entrepreneur because you're not only in the development business, but you have another, uh, another passion project that you started. And I don't know if it's on the shelf or still in under operation, but you started a dry cleaning business called Alfred. Do you want to talk yeah. about that a little <laughs> bit? And uh, it was a great idea, but I know you're, you're, you've been totally preoccupied with your passion, which is real estate. So I don't know if it's still uh, still going or, or what. Yeah. So, well, it is still going, although COVID has you know had a dramatic impact on that business, and so it's um, you know it's hanging on, but it's 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 a very small you know, piece of my time. And in fact, it's been outsourced to other managers who run it. But, you know, it was sort of at the time when I, um, when I left Lifetime and before I joined CD, 
I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was always entrepreneurial. And so I was looking for development opportunities, but you know, I was kind of open to anything that was coming my way. And, you know, somebody brought me this opportunity and said, Hey, we could do this startup and, you know, we're going to deliver all these services directly to buildings and we're going to service it through lockers. It was a very novel idea on how you could make a, what I think is a really kind of tedious, annoying thing to have to do super easy. Like you just have an app, you drop your stuff off in a locker, you place an order and then you walk away and you never have to leave your house for it. So I just thought that was really compelling to me. And so we grew, we were growing the business. And then when COVID hit, you know, yeah. like, look at me today, I'm wearing jeans and a sweater. <laughs> like, I think people are much less formal today. People aren't back in the office yet. So the need for kind of more, more formal, uh, clothing is less. So this is the first time I tucked a shirt in, in about three weeks. So <laughs> it looks good. Thank you. Yeah, I, I like, that. you got a haircut. I, didn't have to do that for I almost though. feel like those are new glasses. You're matching. Everything looks great. Your socks are yeah, same like color as your pants. Same color. You know, I am impressed. Hey, you're looking you, sharp. You look good on that couch. <laughs> I matched the couch too. Let's get a picture of this. But, but, but speak, <laughs> speaking of uh, of hiring, uh, I think we, we, we might have discussed this with Stephen Job last time, but uh, I was listening to, to John Love on a podcast, and he said it's he really wants people to, to come back to the office and experience what it is to work uh, in a team. Because if you're just on Zoom any day, if you change jobs, you're basically just changing screens. You're just basically just changing logins, right? And I'm wondering if you're, are you getting your entire team together or are you going to be a remote work company? How are you organizing your organization? No, I, I'm, I'm, a, question. I'm a Thought you'd never ask. <laughs> I'm a big believer in that. I, I totally agree with what John was saying there. Our business is so collaborative that you need to be in the room with people sometimes. That doesn't mean that you can't have moments where you work from home. Like I think there's probably a hybrid that works, but especially for young people, I think you have to be in an office. I would attribute a huge amount of the learnings I got when I started at Lifetime to just being in the office. Brian's desk was right beside, like he had an office and I was, my desk was like in a corner of his office. So any phone call he had, I was listening to. Anytime there was a meeting, I was hearing it. You know, I would go to meetings just to like take notes for him just so I could hear what, you know, Mel and Sam were saying or, or, um, you know, it was an external meeting, what the consultant was saying. So I was trying to absorb as much as I possibly could. That's how I learned. So how do you do that if you're sitting at home all day? Yeah. You know, if you're only on the call that you're supposed to be on, you're not learning what anyone else is doing. And so I think that's really important, particularly for young people. We are planning to move into an office. You know, when the company started two months later, COVID hit. And so there was no need to get an office. Um, but we are, we actually have an office being built right now. And the plan so, is to be back in time. The question I thought you'd never ask because yeah. Matt's uh, undertook to take on some significant space in a nice new building that's being uh, retrofitted right now. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. We're excited. Big yeah. announcement. Nice. Coming yeah, soon. Nice. Not, not, not yet available. <laughs> I'm, cha- I'm changing offices actually. Are you? Yeah. We're all changing offices. Yeah. All three of us. There you go. Yeah. So, so you're then you're a big believer in staying in the office too. Well, my my analyst lives in, in uh, Cambridge. Oh, okay. So <laughs> yeah. maybe it's but, just just to get away from the kids for a few days. Then. But I wish that you know if all things had been uh, equal and and I I could have him in the office, it would be much better because you just pull him over and go see here. You know, we would have done this or we would have done that. And and, and in, now it's like okay. 
I just don't have those opportunities to do it. And I think he would, he's a good, he's a great analyst. Shout out to, uh, to Andrew. Uh, but he, he would be better if we were sitting beside each other and we could, I could just go, Hey, this, Hey, this, Hey, this, but you know, he started during COVID and, <laughs> and he was, uh, uh, a work from home guy. And we're just, we're staying that way. All right. So, so, so Matt, uh, it's been a good conversation and just, just to kind of wrap up on the, on the Republic stuff, What's the five-year business plan? What are your goals? How do you where do you see the company going in the future? How big do you want to be? How many projects do you want to have under management? Would you go to Barrie, Ottawa, Calgary, Vancouver, Denver, Austin, <laughs> Berlin, <laughs> Tokyo? He's what's going to Miami for sure. Great cities there. Yeah, yeah. What's the plan? And uh, I, I, you're, I know you're a, you're a thinker and a visionary, so I'm I'm sure you spend countless hours planning the, planning the bit putting the business plan together. You know, I, I love the idea of building in a in another city, but I also recognize how local and and kind of um, how how specific every community is that you're building in. And I, I honestly believe that you can't be as an effective developer if you're building in a city that you don't know. So we will. While I'd love to build in London, Austin, L.A., New York, I'd love to do that. I just don't think we can be as competitive as the people there. So we'll probably stick to Toronto, um, at least for now. I never say never, but for now, I think we'll be sticking to Toronto, um, where I think we have an edge. And um, and I think in terms of growth, you know, we, we've got a large pipeline. So now it's just a matter of executing on those projects. I think the plan is to move some you know, through, uh, through the process and we'll start to hire staff as we get to subsequent phases. And that will be how we build out the organization. And then we'll kind of see how we can take on more when the time comes. You know, I think we were we were very quick in getting to a sizable pipeline at this stage. It just happens to all be sort of at the starting line of the development process. So once we get through, um, you know, the, the entitlements on a few of these sites, we'll be able to think so better is, about is how we're going to grow. Is the vision to be like a uh, Tridel? Is that, is that a good uh, place or is that too big or... Our, our vision more, is to be niche. the our vision is to be the best executors of development projects in the country. Like we want to be sort of the you know the the Navy SEALs unit of development. I don't know how big you can get and remain at that, you know executing at that high level. So I think we'll we'll see as we're going you know how big we can go and you know the the ambition isn't to be big for the sake of being big. But the ambition is to be incredible at executing the projects, making sure that the communities we're working in are happy with the projects we're delivering, making sure our partners and investors and other stakeholders are, are, are happy and that, you know, everybody at the end of a project, I want to be proud of the project. I want the community to be proud of it. I want our partners to feel like, you know, they did well and the city to feel like they're proud of it. And if we can do that effectively, um, we'll grow as big as we can before that kind of uh, yeah, there's a tipping point. Arrangement like, starts a, to there, fall apart. You, you find know? the sweet spot where, where you just don't grow to grow and you're growing rapidly, but you're growing, still hitting your goals and not losing sight of, of your mission and vision and values. I think that's the but key. But a, a lot of, you know, sometimes you need to grow in order to continue to execute well. Like if you look at Centercourt as an example, who I think are best in class at executing uh, development projects, They've now brought in construction in-house and other things, and I think a lot of that is because they had more. They would have more control over the process by doing that, and so it it, it further um, improves their ability to execute projects. So, don't bring sales in-house though. 
<laughs> so what uh what do you like to do in your uh spare time i know uh you're a big cyclist do you like to put on the spandex and yeah, get on the old we're, saddle we're, for a couple hours yeah. a day uh you have a cycling company or sorry a cycling team tell us a little bit about uh the passion for cycling where that came from and yeah, I, I sort of fell into it. Um, I was doing a charity event uh, called Bike to Play, which um, which uh, AJ Delzato from Tridel, he puts on. And I hadn't been on a bike since I was probably in high school. And I did that event. It was a 220-kilometer ride up to Muskoka over two days. Jesus. And uh, you, start, you just decided to start large, eh? To yeah, do well, the, the two-kilometer one. I, I kind of looked at it as a personal challenge. So Talk I, about I, chafing. <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, you know, Jeez. you're not, you're not kidding. It was the second day when I got on the bike, I could barely sit on the bike. I had to debate like what hurt more sitting on the seat or standing up for 20 minutes. Like yeah. it was, it was that painful. But when it was all finished, I felt like I'd accomplished something and I had these, I just had this feeling of accomplishment and, uh, it felt almost euphoric. And so I said, you know, I, I, I think I like this sport and let me try and get into it. And I've always been competitive. And I thought this is a way for me to be competitive against myself. Cause you know, you track your stats and you get fitter and faster and then you ride with faster people. And, and so sort of it became a passion for me. And, uh, last year, actually, sorry, two years ago, uh, we formed a, a cycling team. I was kind of myself and a few other people were kind of talking when COVID hit that there weren't a lot of places to people to ride with and places to, um, for some of these people who are passionate about bikes to, to organize. So we ended up founding a team and, uh, this year we're fielding a a women's uh, race team, a men's, uh, elite race team and a development team as well. Uh, you know, and the focus on the group is to promote inclusivity and diversity, um, within, kind of the cycling world. So we're also partnering with a number of charities to kind of get bikes into the hands of kids, um, you know, kind of in, uh, sort of inner city areas and do things like that. But I love the sport. If, you know, if all, I, if all I did was, you know, work, spend time with my family and dog and cycle, I'd be a super happy person. I think so. that's all you do do. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's basically saying he's a happy person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Life could be a lot worse. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so how are we doing on time here? Ed? We have to have Matt back. We hardly even scratched the surface yeah, of know. what's going on. But I let's know. Uh, I know. let's. Are we going to do our rapid fire? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So let's let's get into the rapid fire. All right. Here. I'll go first because the second question is uh, <laughs> is for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Five words or less. Keep them quick. Bada boom, bada bang. No one keeps them five words bang, or less. Bang. But anyways, bang bang rapid fire. I'll game. do my best. Who is the best commercial land real estate? broker in the city <laughs> pass <laughs> there's no passing on the first one <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of really good ones there's a lot of really good ones yeah. who's your favorite the, the last two deals I did was with Jeremiah Shamus um, yeah, so he, we, he we did got, an incredible job we gotta shout out yeah. Jeremiah gotta shout out Jer- Jer- so, Jeremiah okay. coming on we're coming so, on. so getting so getting back to cycling is the spandex is that for fashion or is that for speed Aerodynamics, baby. Yeah, okay, just yep. checking. Let's check. Did the provincial libs have a sniff in the next election? I doubt it. Well, I, I think know. the conservatives will win. Leadership's not looking that great, I don't think. Okay, do you see condo prices declining in the next 12 months? Uh, I'm going to caveat this by saying it depends where. I think downtown and generally in, in Toronto is going to do fine. I think some of the farther out periphery markets where there's been a huge increase in, 
in values might see a bit of a softening. Maybe not even on the condo side. I think probably more on the on the single family home side and and townhouses, things like that. Yeah, I just I just told these guys a uh, you know one point four million dollars for my last valuation for Barry single family. <laughs> <laughs> when it was uh, when it was probably eight hundred and fifty like uh, twenty months ago. Should we raise property taxes in the city of Toronto? It's a good question. I mean, they are, they're low. Very low. And I, I think, uh, I think we can probably afford to raise property taxes a little bit. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you cover some of these other ones because I write the dumb questions, but then I make, I make you read them. <laughs> okay. So in terms of development, what keeps you up at night? Hmm. I think just the, the entitlement process, like working, working through things with the city, you're often dealing with specific personalities and, uh, you know, sometimes things get held up for reasons that don't make a lot of sense and you have to kind of work through that. So that sometimes keeps me up. We had a discussion on our last show about raccoons. They're becoming a real problem in the city of Toronto. <clears throat> the question is, should Toronto allow anyone or everyone in the city to be gun-carrying citizens for the sole purpose of lowering the raccoon population. <laughs> that's nonsense. No, that's ridiculous. I love the trash pandas. I have some. Because you live in a condo. No, actually, I have raccoons because I'm on the ground floor, oh, yeah, and I have yeah. raccoons that kind of walk across kind of the the um, the fence there, and uh, and then my dog sees them and goes absolutely nuts. So he kind of protects us from the raccoons. Yeah, but. we had one living in our barbecue for a little while. <laughs> you should just turn it off. <laughs> Well, not, it was under the little thing underneath, not actually in the barbecue part. Yeah, that wouldn't have been very nice. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm not going to tell Jane. Make sure Jane listens to that moment of the show. That was a funny <laughs> joke off the cuff. Let her know. Cuff. Yeah, we did not cover. Uh, not like we have any pre-podcast meetings, but uh, to go over any of this, we just shoot from the hip. But uh, uh, is it mine? Okay. Yeah, yeah. you're next. Who should we invite on the show next? Who's a who's someone that maybe people don't know from Twitter or the, out there that's maybe a, a smart individual that you think maybe we should have on the show? I think Adrian Roca would be a good guest if you I haven't agree. had him already. Yeah, for he, sure. He's super smart, and he's doing something really interesting in the city, so I think he'd be a great guest. Yeah. I think Jeremiah would be a good guest, too, on the broker side. Both I, I talked how, to this week and both agreed to come on the show. So there you I go. don't know there how you many go. times Adrian's names comes up with people when they say, do you believe he paid that for that site? Yeah. <laughs> That's the question I always get asked, so we'll have to ask him. How do you get away with paying these prices that other people think are too high? All right, I'm going to ask Mike. You're not reading the good questions, oh, okay. so I'll, I'll read them. Okay, you read You're them. just scared. Would you buy a site from the Hells Angels if it meant that you had to keep them in as a JV partner? <laughs> um, probably not. Yeah, he's really I'd, sticking. To the I'd probably not. I'd be interested what the the, the prep would be there. <laughs> your firstborn, not. but I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story. <laughs> a vig on your uh, upside. Wow. Not to sidetrack this too much, we can talk about it on the next podcast. But they were a tenant at um, at our project in Scarborough before we bought it. Yeah, so you get rid of them. I didn't get rid of them. The 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 owner decided to get rid of them, but. But I'm pretty sure our previous, one of our did. previous guests, uh, Percy Ellis, uh, they bought a site from the Hells Angels. They bought yeah. their like head office or whatever. Yeah. So well, I don't know if they're uh, if they're, they're JVing on the future development there. We have two left. Okay. 
Oh, can I can I get? Can I ask the last one? Sure. When is your wedding? It's been three years since you popped the big question. Yeah. There's <laughs> no date yet. No, it hasn't been three years. Ah. Two and a half. Good question. Um, <laughs> COVID has sort of thrown everything for a loop. We were like the week that COVID happened, we were putting deposits down on venues and everything else. And then of course COVID happened and you know, life moved on. So, uh, we're, you know, we're, there's no rush. We're, uh, everything's great. And I think when the world opens back up again, we'll figure out how to do that. And if you need a house or you need a condo, shout out Jerrica, one of the top realtors in the city. You can hit up Matt. Matt will give you her number if you're looking for a rental or a new pre-con. She's in the pre-con game. She does resales. She's awesome. So, Shout out to Erica. Yeah. Well, we'll ask the question that we always ask. If someone wants to uh, reach out to you, I know that you're a little strapped for time, but if someone wants to find you on the uh, interweb, where do they go? Where do they find Republic? Yeah, I think my email is on, uh, on our website, so you yep. can email me there. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh Republic Developments, M. Young Yeah, it's M. Young at republicdevelopments.com. And uh, M. Young T.O. is my Twitter. Cool. Thank you so much. Less active on Twitter these days. Not not as much as you, Ben. I I try to quit all the time, (laughs) but I just keep coming back. And it's just, I just like. The trolls need, get under your skin. We need like you just, a, uh, need like, a like, like the breathalyzer version. You know, when you have too many DUIs, they put a breathalyzer in your car so you can only drive when you're sober. So we need something, I don't know, because Ben doesn't drink, but like something <laughs> when Ben just has this like tweet, he's like, I have to tweet, I have to tweet. They actually, that, that he has to like call me and he's like, Steve, can I tweet? And he's like, ah, you're at your limit for the day. You know the twi- Twitter now, <laughs> like if you put a swear word in one of your tweets, uh, it says, do you really want to send that? So there's a few times I've been like, oh, go F yourself. And then, and then it says, do you really want to send and then I'm like, okay, I don't want to Every send time that. Ben tweets, it should send a message to Matt and I and say, we have to like approve or not approve the tweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And on that basis, Ben's tweets will go down by like the 25 to 30% this yeah, year. Or, uh, or you have to do one of those CAPTCHA things where you have to like, you know, find how many street <laughs> yeah. lights are in the, in the yeah. box. <laughs> exactly. That's enough to just not tweet. Yeah. 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 Anyways. Well, thanks again, Matt. And we uh, Great hope show. to have you on again and uh, get a little bit more into the, uh, the planning. I know, because that's your you know it keeps you up at night so we'll we'll get into the specifics of those nightmares sounds good thank you guys appreciate you having me awesome